Hey, this is Chief Kaufman uh, here once again to uh, talk about hot topics in EMS. I'm joined with Captain Tim Burns from our QI shop. Hi, Tim. Hey, how are you doing? Um, you know, I'm doing the same way I always do. And we got Dr. Sam Galvano here with us as well to uh, provide some insight into what we're going to be talking about today. Hi, Sam. Hi there. Glad to be part of it. Great. Uh, why don't we start with a little bit of introduction. They, everybody that's listening knows Tim and they know myself. Why don't you uh, go over a little bit of your background, Doc? Sure, Sam Galvano. I'm uh, at Shock Trauma Center. Most of my work here is intensive care, but I do also trauma anesthesiology. And so uh, frontline resuscitation and also see the back end of all of our resuscitation. Also boarded in EMS, so love EMS and always trying to be as involved as I can. Um, I'm an assistant medical director for Anne Arundel and uh, currently the medical director for our statewide Critical Care Coordination Center, which we have at MIMS. So uh, thanks for having me. And uh, this is a really important topic. So happy to talk about it. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So the purpose of us getting together is to talk about fluid resuscitation uh, and some specific protocol changes that happened over, uh, it was actually two protocol cycles ago. Uh, so where we're living now, if you uh, were reading along in your protocol, would be the shock and hypoperfusion protocol. Uh, and Captain Burns is part of our protocol review committee, so I'd like to kick it to him and kind of walk through the recent changes that we saw with this protocol and uh, then get into the why a little bit later, Tim. Sure, yeah. So it was a couple of years ago that um, I had worked with Dr. Galvano and also Dr. Millen, who was then at Prince George's County. So it was uh, sort of a, uh, all three counties sort of pulled their heads and we all submitted a joint proposal that ended up getting through MIMS. Um, and the main thing that came out of it, it was the limitation of fluid administration in hemorrhagic shock or, or patients who are bleeding, who are uh, headed towards shock, but not there yet. Um, and before we used to give, uh, give crystalloid fluid a lot earlier in our treatment of trauma patients. And it was almost, you know, you, you see a trauma patient and you're talking about starting large bore IVs and, and giving some, uh, some bit of fluid. Uh, and really what we changed it to the current protocol reads that you wait. So it's, it's uh, some people call it permissive hypotension. We're willing to tolerate a lower blood pressure in trauma patients than we were in the, in the past before we start treating it. So uh, 90 millimeters of mercury for your trauma patients who are bleeding uh, before we start giving fluids, 110 millimeters of mercury for patients with suspected head injury. And that's because we want to keep that cerebral perfusion pressure up. And when you do give fluid to the patient who does finally meet the blood pressure criteria, you want to give uh, controlled boluses of no more than 250 milliliters before you recheck the blood pressure and reassess. And you only want to give enough to maintain that minimum blood pressure, whether it be 90 or, or 110. So we're just talking about trauma patients here, hemorrhagic shock, uh, and not uh, either dehydrated patients or septic patients. They, they still get fluid the way we used to give. Don't limit it to, you know, people bleed for other reasons than trauma. So I would say that if you have a GI bleeder who is, you know, teetering on that 100 millimeters of mercury uh, blood pressure, systolic blood pressure, I would say hold off on the fluid for them. It's anybody who's bleeding. Right, you've got a, a person who's got a rectal bleed, who's headed down uh, their their blood pressure. They've lost a lot of blood, and and now they're headed down that road. Um, it's any hemorrhagic sh shock, which 
uh, historically we associate with trauma, but don't forget that it, it's not always from trauma. Okay. I think it's important now to talk about the reason why we're having this podcast. This protocol has been out for a couple of years, but what we've been seeing in our quality assurance reviews is mostly with trauma cases where we have patients who there's a lot of blood on the ground or there's what perceived to be uh, some, some hemorrhage, but their blood pressure is okay. Yet we're seeing people still go through this two large bore IV hanging liters of fluid on the way to the hospital. And uh, that's why we're talking about this now. It's not just a, a couple of isolated cases. It's pretty widespread across our system, right? Do you have anything to add to that? It's almost like we the, the message didn't get through with the, the protocol update, which is you know not unheard of. It's actually more often the, the rule instead of the exception. Um, but it, I, I don't think that it was very well communicated this change to the protocol and we're seeing the effects of that people you know people do what they know and nobody ever really highlighted to them or maybe they heard about it and forgot about it and they revert to what they learned in their initial training but whatever the reason is um, we're still seeing a lot of fluid administration in um, in trauma patients so if we're just talking about the protocol what is the uh, somebody was uh, shot, stabbed, whatever, there's a lot of blood on the ground. What are we supposed to do for them with respect to fluid or volume resuscitation if their blood pressure is, say, 115? Uh, that's a great question. So I think the first thing is to stop the bleeding by whatever means we have, you know, whether it's uh, direct pressure, pressure bandage, wound packing, quick clot, hemostatic agents. And, you know, ultimately we can head towards a tourniquet if it's a compressible site or uh, uh, in, in a place where we can put a tourniquet. Um, but that's, that's really what needs to happen and what needs to happen first, control the bleeding. Um, and then we want to assess the patient and treat them accordingly. And we want to treat them according to those blood pressure criteria that are, that are in the protocol. It, their blood pressure has to be less than 90 systolic or 110 if they've got a head injury. So what we're saying is zero fluid if their blood pressure is above 90 and they're not a head, head injury, right? That's correct, zero. zero fluid. Okay, great. All right, Dr. Galvano, can you get into some of the physiology about why this protocol change happened and uh, maybe some of the differences between why we're giving, why we're withholding fluid in hemorrhagic shock and not the other types of shock? Absolutely. So. This protocol change is grounded in at least three different levels of evidence. It's founded on physiology, which I can talk about briefly. I won't go too crazy, but I'll talk about that. I can talk about the animal studies, which suffice to say, all the animal studies have shown the same thing. When we give more fluid to hemorrhagic uh, shock models, they don't do well. The animals do not do well, and neither do humans. And then finally, we have a lot of clinical studies that support this concept of withholding fluid and letting that blood pressure ride at the thresholds you're talking about. So this is a, I wanna emphasize, this is an evidence-based protocol change. And it is something we should be endorsing. And on my end, as an intensive care doc, uh, I see the results of too much fluid. I see the results of it in the OR and I see the results of that in the intensive care unit. These are patients who develop acute respiratory distress syndrome. They require significant de-resuscitation. This puts a tremendous hit on their lungs and it requires us to give more blood products because we've now diluted out their blood. Now, let's back up for a second. I get why this happens. We all do. Look, we're cl as clinicians in the field or in the hospital, blood pressure is easy to obtain. It's a tangible benefit. It's a tangible number, and we're goal-directed, and we don't like 
We're not trained to, to tolerate low blood pressures. That's a bad thing in a lot of other disease states. Um, so that's what we are reacting to. And I think that's what our clinicians are reacting to. Uh, but we have to realize that, again, going back to World War I, we started to recognize this. World War II, Henry Beecher recognized that a systolic uh, ranging right around 90 before you do definitive surgery is beneficial. And anything above that augmented with fluids is not beneficial. Bickle in 94, that was really the first study that was in a randomized controlled study that showed aggressive fluid resuscitation did not improve outcomes and in fact made patients more prone to bleed. And then finally, there's several other clinical studies that have looked at this. But I, I want to be fair. I mean, I understand why this is still happening. We have to train ourselves cognitively, though, to accept that systolic of 90 or systolic of 110 if it's a suspected traumatic brain injury and not open the floodgates with fluids. And I was trained to give lots of fluids as a medic back in the day when I was trained as a paramedic in Maryland. And I will tell you that I understand that. And it is a departure from what we previously did. But like all things in medicine, we have to adapt to the latest evidence and physiology. Multiple studies have shown in both blunt and penetrating trauma, when we withhold crystalloid fluid, and allow that blood pressure to ride 90 systolic, the patients do fine. And in fact, if they have a traumatic brain injury and we allow it to go a little higher, and that, that maybe we need to augment that with other things like vasopressors, that's a whole separate talk, but the point being uh, to preserve that cerebral perfusion, patients do fine. We do not need a quote unquote normal blood pressure with these patients, not right away. And so the literature on this, let me just, I'll shoot a couple things out and I can augment this with with slides that have the references, but let me let me shoot a couple ones out there at you real quick so you understand that this is really evidence-based. So first of all, the Bickle study was done in Texas. It was a prospective uh, randomized controlled trial that just under 600 patients, these were gunshot and stab patients. So what they did was they said, okay, and this was a medic study. This is a pre-hospital study, immediate versus delayed fluid. So the immediate was, let's go ahead and, Tank them with fluid just to get their systolic into the 120 range, normal range. Or don't give them a drop of fluid and let them come to the hospital with us with a systolic of 90. And let's see if we can just take care of it when they get to the hospital. So what they found was in the patients that got a lot of fluid, they, had, they did have a higher blood pressure. That's true. But they also had more evidence of coagulopathy as evidenced by laboratory parameters. In other words, these patients bled more. They bled more. So because we diluted them out, there's no oxygen carrying content with crystalloids. It does expand the volume, but it also dilutes all the coagulation factors. And it could be pro-inflammatory and it can damage the kidneys if we're giving saline because it's actually a fairly high chloride load that the kidneys don't like. So there's harm in targeting this blood pressure just so we feel better. The Bickle study in 94, again, just under 600 patients, that was the first that showed withholding fluid resuscitation until you get control of the hemorrhage did not increase your mortality. So that was the first one. Then we did one here, shock trauma, 2002, Dutton. Now, now they included blunt trauma because that was like, hey, that's fine for penetrating. What about blunt trauma? Well, in blunt trauma, what they did was they went to 100 versus a 70 systolic, crystalloids to maintain. Same findings, no difference in mortality. And in fact, patients who got more fluid wound up more coagulopathic. 
And then there's other studies that have come out more recently. The Schreiber study in 2015 is another one that looked at blunt or penetrating trauma. Same findings. Higher mortality when you gave more fluid to blunt trauma patients. Less mortality when we gave less. And, uh, and by the way, in their experimental group, it mirrors our exact protocol. They only, so in the experimental group, they let the systolic get to 70, 70. That's low. That's really low. And they only gave 250 milliliter aliquots like our protocol, but they used a target of even lower, 70. And still using that lower blood pressure, they did not see a mortality problem. The final study to throw out there is the Carrick study in 2016. This was a long-standing trial. This was listed as a negative trial because it didn't show any difference, but there actually were differences. There's differences if you withhold fluid, it can reduce your mortality from bleeding early on in patients. So in other words, I think what I'm saying here, there are multiple trials that support this concept and they've all been done in the pre-hospital environment. And I really, this is an evidence-based recommendation. I can really appreciate you pointing out that we want to do something. We see a lot of blood on the ground. We want to help. We want to improve and get that blood pressure up. Uh, and there's a lot of clinicians out there that perceive that there's going to be this problem because of the blood loss of blood pressure problem, and they want to get ahead of it. Right. Uh, but you're saying based on evidence, there's no, there's no worry from that. It's okay to be uh, hypo, hypotensive to some extent. And if, in fact, if we try to get ahead of it, we could be doing more harm. True. Exactly. So do you want to talk about in, re in real life, when you get these patients who are yeah. resuscitated in the field, what happens, what actually happens to them in the hospital? The biggest thing we see is they ooze like crazy. They're very difficult to control. Our surgeons are trying to damage control. So let me also back up and say, we have a paradigm, and this is, this is the first beginnings of it, which starts in the field called damage control resuscitation. Not damage control surgery. Damage control sur surgery is not trying to do all the surgeries at once like we used to do 20 years ago, but trying to do one or two quick controlled surgeries, bring them to the ICU, do more resuscitation, bring them back to the OR. That's damage control surgery. Damage control resuscitation is not trying to fix all the numbers, but allowing them to get to the lower limit of acceptable physiology so that we can stop the hemorrhage, stop the anatomical cause of bleeding, and allow the physiology to catch up. So this is a, a critical component of damage control resuscitation that we as pre-hospital clinicians, you as pre-hospital clinicians, can implement. And so what we see when it's not implemented, when we see patients come in with two, three liters of fluid, and yeah, they might have a systolic of 120 initially, they bleed, they're oozy, we can take that even to a higher level and do special lab tests nowadays to even see their whole coagulation cascade and it's all of it's grossly deranged, which means that we have to then in turn give even more blood products to catch up and reverse that. So what we're talking about is a dilution of all the coagulation factors that cause you to make a blood clot. That's number one. Number two is the lungs. The lungs don't like a lot of fluid when they're, especially when they're inflamed and damaged. So add on a chest injury, add on a pneumothorax, add on a contusion, a pulmonary contusion, a very common injury in a high speed, say motor vehicle or motorcycle crash. Now you're adding extra fluid that gets into the lungs and we have to deal with that. In some cases, in some cases, they go on a heart lung machine or ECMO, which is the extreme 
manifestation. But we do see that. We see that with this over-resuscitation with crystalloids. Last, the kidneys. The kidneys don't like a lot of saline. And there's been several papers that have shown saline. Notice how I'm not saying normal saline. I'm not using that term. I'm saying 0.9% saline because there's nothing normal about normal saline. It's, it's actually super physiologic. It's got a chloride and sodium content that are multiple points above what our normal serum values are. And so the kidneys don't like that. And also, by the way, saline contributes to more acidosis. And there's complex acid-based physiology that we can maybe talk about some other time uh, to, to talk about that. So those three things are what we see, the coagulation disorder, we see lung problems, and we see kidney problems. And, and let's add in, if this is a patient who doesn't have a great heart, this could also be something that could add to more problems. Um, and say an elderly patient, um, th those patients have to be really treated really carefully. Um, you know, and so those are, the, those are the big things we see on the back end. The TCCC guidelines from the end of, they were updated at the end of last year, completely prohibit uh, crystalloid resuscitation in the field. Now they have other options. Uh, I'm just wondering where, where we are in EMS systems in terms of uh, being uh, on the curve or ahead of the curve with respect to res restricting fluid resuscitation. Any sense of that? Yeah, so I can I can definitely speak to that. And you know, you're absolutely right. We have our TCCC guidelines. We also have our Joint Theater Trauma System Clinical Practice Guideline. And just like you have both said earlier, and just as our current uh, protocol is in Maryland, unless you've got a, a spinal cord injury or a TBI, notice a spinal cord injury is also another one to kind of lump in with TBI to think about because we do need that. So the thing is blood pressure does not equal flow in every patient. That's the key term. Blood pressure does not always equal blood flow except if you've got a spinal cord injury or a TBI, then aiming for a slightly higher blood pressure is something we do endorse. In the military, you're absolutely right. Systolic and 90, and I will tell you to go even further than that, if you do flood these patients in the field or in transport, that's an automatic M&M event. And you are brought under the, the microscope and the spotlight and you have to defend that action. Now, sometimes it is defensible. Most of the time it's not. Most of the time they just, you know, you know, you and I both know how easy it is to lose track of fluid. If you open it up and then do something else and don't have your hand on that dial, you can easily get a leader into a patient quickly, especially with, with large bore access. I'm not saying don't place large bore access. We want the access. We love that. But let's use that access to give blood products and stuff. Let's not use it to give fluids. So the TCCC guidelines, the Joint Theater Trauma System Clinical Practice Guidelines, and then even to take it one step further, worldwide, there's also another group called the Trauma Hemostasis Oxygenation Research, THOR group, which is uh, very based heavily in Europe. So they also, um, they really talk about pre-hospital damage control resuscitation, more for patients that have prolonged field times and they can't get into the hospital as quickly as we can do here in Maryland. So they also talk about this concept. They use a little bit of a different threshold of about 100 just to keep it kind of a little bit higher because that's just what they believe, but it's the same concept. Do not give more crystalloids just to get a falsely high blood pressure to make you feel better. It won't make the patient better. So those are some international and military uh, guidelines that are, are very much the same as what we have in Maryland. And we're just talking about hemorrhagic shock here, but it's still okay to give crystalloid and septic shock or patient who's yes. dehydrated, et cetera. What, can you talk a little bit about why the, what the difference is there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in septic shock, you know, we're talking now about a different pathophysiology. We're talking about what we would call a distributive shock. What happens there is the blood vessels dilate and you need to tighten them up and fill them back up. So that's why we give the fluid up front and then vasopressors. So that's a different type of shock. And hemorrhagic shock, and you're right, it's not just trauma. If you have a bad GI bleed, um, there's other causes of medical hemorrhage. GI bleed would be one of the big ones that we would see in EMS. So these same principles apply because now you have a, hem a hemorrhagic shock that results in hypovolemia. But what's happening at the microcirculatory level is not vasodilation, not initially, vasoconstriction. Now, even in hemorrhagic shock, if we let it go long enough, yes, they will get vasodilated. But that's not a problem we deal with in the field. That's something we, we should be dealing with in the ICU and operating room. So the difference is distributive versus hemorrhagic shock. The blood vessels are reacting differently. And so that's why, you know, giving fluid and septic shock is a little bit different. Although, you know, there's, there's data coming out that we should be careful with septic shock as well, not, not to overload patients. What we do now in our protocol supports is, is supported by the national guidelines that we have in the surviving sepsis campaign. But for hemorrhagic shock, it's a different ball game because the physiology is different. Our body is trying to constrict rather than dilate uh, in response to the loss of blood. Great. So those who are paying attention know that there's a new pilot protocol in Maryland for the administration of whole blood. Uh, do you want to get into that a little bit? Sure. So whole blood, it's a great concept. And we hope to get it out there. It's been a logistical challenge, as you can imagine. Uh, whole blood has all the components of whole blood. So what we do in the trauma center most of the time is we give a packed bunch of red cells. That, re that repletes the red cells, but there's no coagulation factors in that unit. We then have to give fresh frozen plasma to give the coagulation factors back. We also have to give other things such as cryoprecipitate to give more fibrinogen back to the patient so that they can replete their stores which have been depleted due to hemorrhagic shock. So what we wind up doing in the hospital is this piecemeal approach of blood component therapy, platelets also, we have to give platelets. Whole blood's got it all. Whole blood is like, you know, and we, in the military, this really started with using walking blood banks. We would take folks that had the same blood type, draw their blood out, put it in a bag and give it to their buddy who just got shot or wounded. So we've been doing this for a long time in the military. I, I'm a military physician too. I think you guys know that. I, just for the audience, I mean, when I speak about this stuff, um, still active in the reserve. So we do see that. And now in Maryland, we do have the ability to blood bank whole blood, which has platelets, coagulation factors, and red cells. So now if a patient's hemorrhaging, if we give them whole blood, and this program will be rolled out with the Maryland State Police just because we can control it through that, you know, that venue a little bit better. Um, and also because that's a pre-selected way to identify our sickest patients. Um, but not to say that we couldn't roll it out to other jurisdictions. I hope you un everyone understands that. We could do this. But to start there, have some strict inclusion criteria that really do identify those patients that are truly hypotensive. But rather than giving them fluid, let's give them back what they need. These are, these are, by the way, going to be obvious patients with, um, and we can, I can share the indications for it, not to get too detailed, but we're talking about patients that are in bad shape, amputations, obvious hemorrhage at the scene, um, obvious uncontrolled hemorrhage at the scene. That is before we get there, our clinicians, EMS clinicians get there to apply tourniquets. 
and, and do such. Um, so these are patients that are very hypotensive. I'm talking low systolics, well less than 90. And giving whole blood can now replete all their factors at once, which is a really nice uh, goal. And they get to us, they'll be much already resuscitated in a lot of cases and much better than they would if they've just gotten fluids. We are using whole blood here at Shock Trauma. We use this now. It's a limited resource. We usually only have four to six units at a time. One badly banged up trauma patient can easily consume all those units in an hour. So it's a precious resource and we've got to use it carefully. But to get to your point, you know, we really do need to think about, you know, how we're doing this. This is a better solution than just opening up an IV back and giving yeah, saline. It's, it's been really big in San Antonio. They've had a lot of success. If anybody is following along at home, they, they really uh, led the charge on this one, as far as I know, but it probably started with the military. And then to yep. San Antonio, because uh, what's the big military hospital right there in? in um, yeah. So they used to have the Brook Army Medical Center. Now it's the San Antonio Medical Consortium, uh, Military Medical Consortium, SAMC. Right. And you're absolutely right. There's a huge military presence in San Antonio. It's one of our hubs for the Air Force and the Army. And that's really where a lot of that was extrapolated from our, because I mean, think about it, you know, we can't carry liters of fluid into the field anyway. Our special forces guys, our forward deployed troops, we don't, we don't have the ability to carry liters of fluid. It's heavy, uh, they expire, the heat degrades the fluids. So that's where this started out of necessity, but we learned pretty quickly that by the way, patients do pretty well. And actually some of the strongest evidence comes from the military on that. So you're exactly right. It's, uh, it's kind of an extrapolation from military experience. What are your thoughts on TXA? You know, we had a great uh, point counterpoint this last year. It was virtual, but I, for those listeners that were on that, really good. I think you can still get the lectures. I'm not sure if you can't, um, but it can or can't, but it was led by our state medical director, Dr. Chismar, and he did a phenomenal job of bringing some experts into the room and doing some pro-cons. So look, TXA is um, has been touted as a silver bullet. I'll just give you my opinion based on the data. I think we probably should be giving this in the field. I think it's probably doesn't have much harm. TXA is an antifibrinolytic. So what happens in some trauma patients is that their blood clots start to break down inappropriately, too quickly. And so they bleed more because they, they, they make a clot, then the clot gets broken up. So if we can give a drug that stops that, that could be beneficial. But it's not that simple. Tranexamic acid probably has anti-inflammatory properties as well. And that's where we may see some of the results is when you get injured badly enough to be in hemorrhagic shock and hypotensive, you have had a profound inflammatory insult. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why we're seeing signals in the literature that TXA can help. Um, there's been several trials. The big one I think that most of us are looking at is the STAMP trial from Frank Guyette published in JAMA Surgery in 2021, last year. This was uh, a big trial that they looked at in uh, Pittsburgh. What they found were for the patients that were really hypotensive, systolic less than 70, there was a mortality benefit when giving TXA. But for the other populations of patients that didn't have as much shock, so their systolic was right around 90 or above 90, they didn't see a, a positive benefit with that trial. So some people are saying, oh, stamp, that was a negative trial. It wasn't a negative trial. It's a negative trial if you apply this to everyone, 
But by the way, there was not a lot of harm. That's the other thing that's important to realize. TXA also is not that expensive. One of the price estimates I've seen anywhere from 47 to 150 bucks a pop, which is a drop in the bucket for most of us. I think it's cheaper than that now, but that's the last estimate that I got. So it's cheap. Um, if you give it, you're probably not going to get into trouble with side effects. There's reports of seizures, but that's been reported when we bolus it really fast. The military is actually now doing a two gram slow push. That's in TCCC. So our guidelines in TCCC, we believe in it in the military. Um, I don't know for EMS, you know, we, we've gone back and forth with this. I think that in our system, it's a challenge because you guys get patients tested shock trauma so quickly. We can do some special tests in the trauma resuscitation unit immediately to determine if we need TXA by looking at special things like thromboelastograms or rotational um, viscoelastic monitors, ROTEM. And we can tell immediately if we really need the TXA versus if we kind of don't need it. But in the field, we don't have any choice, and I don't think there's a lot of harm. So I'm going to side on the, the pro side of giving TXA in the field. I think it's a cost-effective drug. I will tell you as an EMS clinician myself, when I'm in the field, I don't carry a lot of drugs because you guys have all the drugs. I don't need to carry RSI drugs in my car, but I do carry a vial of TXA because it's something you don't have. And if I think we, you know, we're on a scene and especially if it's a prolonged entrapment, you know, you're looking at an hour or so, our go team, we carry it for the go team. We do give TXA and I'm going long winded on this, but I guess my point with TXA is the literature has shown one thing. If you don't give it quickly, you're not going to get an effect. And in fact, if you give TXA three hours down the line, you're not going to have a great effect. You need to give TXA early. Our system is equipped to get patients to trauma centers early. So you could make the counter argument that we get people here so fast, we don't need to give it at the field. My counter argument is, what about those prolonged entrapments? What about the longer transport times we have in some of our jurisdictions? I know you both have some longer transports and the places that you look after. So I would be pro TXA. That's my position. That's not a state position. That's Sam Galvano's opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I, I know that it's going to come back up uh, for possible inclusion in the protocol this year. You know, I think Dr. Chismar said that he wanted to start having the discussion. So uh, it's still up in the air as to whether or not we'll, we'll end up getting it. But e even if you're... You know, we do have short transport times, but if you if you look at the at the time of injury as being the, the T zero, you know, I, I think that most trauma patients are getting to the trauma center right around that 60 minute mark. Yeah. And, you know, so if you want to if the goal is to give it in under an hour from the time of injury, when you take into account all of the segments, not just the transport time, but all of the segments that go into the the complete pre-hospital interval you're 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 looking at an hour and then nothing magical happens when you cross the threshold at the trauma center that patient still needs to be evaluated and assessed and get lab results back so you know it's not like there's going to be somebody standing there as you cross the threshold with the with the syringe of TXA so the, those folks that make that short transport time argument, I, I, uh, I would just counter that argument with, you know, well, let, let's look at the actual, you know, entire pre-hospital interval and for the 90th percentile of our, our folks out there. And I, I think it's a lot longer than a lot of people think. Anything yeah, else yeah. on the horizon that we may not be aware of? Is there, is there a better indicator to drive our resuscitations out there that we might not be thinking of? Um, you know, I think one of the things that we do, okay, so I think vasopressors, there may be more to come for with that, you know, and we here we are talking about 
at Sestalka 110 for TBIs. And, you know, is there a role for push dose pressers? I, I think that's a big challenge and training. We'd have to do a lot more, but I know in sepsis, you know, right now in our state, we don't have, we don't endorse the one drug that we use, norepinephrine. And I think we should, we should look at that. That's, that's for more septic shock, but there's a lot of push in, in septic shock on giving pressors a little bit earlier and before really giving that full 30 mils per kg bolus. And that 30 mils per kg bolus may not be beneficial for all septic shock patients. So that's one thing, but then in hemorrhagic shock, you know, is there a role for early vasopressors? We've actually participated in a study with the Europeans. We're the control group because we don't do it. So we've shared some EMS data with them. And so those, the results from that trial should be forthcoming, but we didn't, sh we didn't show any harm when we gave vasopressors in Europe. So they give vasopressors early in Europe for hemorrhagic shock. I think it's controversial. I think we once again get into this whole game of let's get to a blood pressure that we think is good for the patient. Yet we know in multiple studies now that, you know, letting patients ride at 90 or so if they don't have a traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury is perfectly safe. One other thing that we could think about and that I've, I, you know, it's, it's something we do with shock trauma. So every time someone does come in with a traumatic brain injury or even a spinal cord injury, but mostly traumatic brain injuries, you will see us give a hypertonic bolus of fluid, 3%, 2% saline, either one, doesn't matter. So we do that because it helps shrink the brain. There's an osmotic effect. Um, that particular fluid stays in your blood vessels much longer than a regular 0.9% saline bolus or even a lactated ringer's bolus. So that may be something to think about is, you know, the question of, okay, what if I get to a systolic of 70 or 60 and I'm really struggling and I do just need a little more volume just to get me into the elevator, up to the true so they can give whole blood and all the good stuff. And so, you know, TXA and all that stuff is great, but maybe there's still a role for hypertonic saline. I can tell you that the studies have not shown a mortality benefit, but, but there are a lot of in vitro effects. In other words, in the lab, we see a lot of anti-inflammatory effects with hypertonic. Plus, if they do have a traumatic brain injury and that's a patient you're struggling with, why not give that in the field? Because as soon as they hit the trauma center, you'll see that's one of the top things we will do in the first five minutes is we will give a hypertonic bolus um, use almost always if we're concerned about increased intracranial pressure from a traumatic brain injury. So that's something to think about. I've brought that up before. I, you know, I, I understand that we'd have to stock that. I understand that we'd have to be careful about our indications. I will tell you that when I, when I'm in the operating room and we do occasionally, believe it or not, run out of blood products, we go through a cooler of blood. We have nothing left. The patient's got a systolic of 50 and they're ready to code because they have zero volume left, we will occasionally give them some fluid. And my choice is to give them hypertonic. So it stays in the vessels longer. It doesn't dilute them as more. It's a lower volume. And it bridges me to my next cooler where I can start giving them blood products again. I do have to say giving blood products in the field is challenging. It's hard. I mean, you guys would, as leaders, would have a hard time with you know, making sure the blood is at the right temperature, making sure it doesn't expire. Um, I think right down the road, you know, we do have people at Maryland still working on artificial blood products. We have not cracked that nut yet, unfortunately. Um, we just haven't. We've been working on it for years. It's going to happen at some point. I really do believe that, but we don't have good oxygen carriers that are safe for patients yet. 
Um, but we do have a team here at Maryland that's working on that. They're actually working on it with pediatric patients, believe it or not. So more to come on that, but I, I don't have any good news to report that, hey, by the way, next month, there's going to be a paper on artificial blood that finally works. I don't see it happening for another five to 10 years. But so for now, we have to do make the best decisions like we do now with what we're talking about today. And, you know, just be good clinicians, not try to overshoot um, targets. All right, Tim, Dr. Gavano, very much appreciate you both being here and uh, speaking with us about fluid resuscitation in hemorrhagic shock. Hope this was very enlightening for everybody out there, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you.